Um, well, it's good to uh, see you all tonight. Um, thank you all for, for coming out. Uh, tonight we're going to look at Paul's letter to uh, the Romans. And I thought what I'd do is just have a wee check who's read Romans recently. So if you've read Romans in the last... Well, let's say you've read it, some of it in the last week. Anybody read it in the last week? Yes. <laughs> you see, that's why he's our minister. Very good. Okay, so who's... Okay, and yes. Uh, uh, who has read some of Romans, let's say, in the last three months since maybe February? Okay, now I'm getting impressed. What about, let's say, since last summer? Who's read at least a bit of Romans? Okay, right, we're, we're doing pretty well. We're off to a good start. That might give us a wee bit of a heads up in the wee quiz I'm going to... Um, do now with us. <laughs> so, anybody done one of those Facebook BuzzFeed quizzes? You know this sort of thing. What ancient philosopher are you? Or what jungle animal are you? <laughs> Come on, who's done one of those? Fess up. <laughs> Stanley, you haven't done one. <laughs> oh, yeah. He doesn't know what he's missing. He doesn't know what he's missing, so I thought we'd do our own here. So um, we're going to have a wee look at what sort of Romans reader are you? So we've got a number of questions here, and don't be shouting out now. We're going to take a show of hands for these. So here we go. Easy one to get us into it. Question one, does this phrase occur in the letter? You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. True? Okay, we've a few for true. Come on, put your hands up. Put your hands up. Okay, quite a few. Who's false? Okay, I think the trues have it there. But in fact, it is false. So, Norman, where does it come from? First Thessalonians. Second one, Margaret Thatcher once said, Britain would be great again if everyone read the New Testament, especially St. Paul's letter to the Romans. <laughs> Did Margaret Thatcher ever say that during her career? True or false? True? Okay, quite a few for true. Quite a few. Okay, who's fa- who thinks it's false? Mm, I think the falses have it there. And indeed it is false. <laughs> Number three, who said after reading Romans 1.17, I'll not ask anybody to quote Romans 1.17, but it's that bit, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, etc., etc. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates. Was it A, John Wesley, B, John Milton, C, Martin Luther, or D, Bob Dylan? <laughs> Who's for John Wesley? Okay, a few aspiring Methodists there. <clears throat> John Milton? Okay, yes, that's got a good bit of support. Martin Luther? Mm-hmm. 
think we're sort of kind of equally dispersed here. Bob Dylan. <laughs> and in fact, it was Martin Luther. <laughs> Going quite well here. Another couple to go. Another, another one to see, uh, test your knowledge of the contents. Does this a phrase occur in Paul's letter to the Romans? The Jewish law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. True or false? Is that true? Who's for true? Okay, we've got not much support for true. False? Actually, it's true. <laughs> Romans chapter 7. The phrase God of wrath occurs more in Romans than God of peace. True or false? Who's for true? Few true, few true. Any more? Come on, do I see a hand? Is there one? Who's false? Okay. <coughs> in fact, God of wrath does not appear in Romans at all. In fact, Paul never uses the phrase. Um, it's com- quite commonly used by other Jewish writers of the period. Paul never uses it. Uh, and in fact, his, his favorite phrase of this type is, in fact, God of peace. And uh, occurs several times in Romans. Last question. <coughs> <laughs> Steve Stockman said the following in his book on you too. Steve, you can't vote in this. When Bono wrote, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, he was, of course, thinking of Romans chapter 8. Did Steve say that? True or false? Who's for true? Quite good support for that. Who thinks it's false? And indeed... Steve never said such a thing at all. <clears throat> but I'm quite impressed with how you've done on that, so um, let's get the computer to calculate what you got. There you go. Well done. New Testament scholar. Some people might recognize that figure, that uh, picture. <clears throat> Sorry? No, uh, Tom Wright, uh, famous N.T. Wright, uh, if you don't know. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's move on a wee bit um, after that wee bit of fun. Romans, without doubt, is probably the most important text. It's one of the most important texts in the Bible. One commentator has said one can almost write the history of Christian theology by surveying the ways in which Romans has been interpreted. There's major commentaries on it from every era of Christian history, origin and Chrysostome in the patristic period, Augustine in the fourth century, Aquinas Abelard in the medieval period, and of course it was a key text for the reformers. For them, Romans was a very powerful text, and it was seen as the definitive treatise on faith against works, and the evidence for them of the doctrine of individual predestination to heaven or hell. 
As you move forward into the 18th century, Romans was vital for John Wesley. He came to faith in Christ through hearing aloud the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans. Uh, and it was a very formative text for early Methodists. And since then, the letter has continued to dominate New Testament studies with major commentaries in every generation. And in the last 30 years, there's been a, a virtual tsunami of writing on this letter. So I thought we might just take a few minutes to remind ourselves of the contents of the letter. <clears throat> I'm delighted this evening to welcome as a special guest from the first century, from Corinth, where he was enjoying some souvlaki and a glass of Retsina, the Apostle Paul. Come on, let's give the Apostle Paul a, a welcome. So, Paul, how's the weather in Corinth? Uh, it was sunny when I left. <laughs> and what about that old thorn in the flesh? Uh, it's still there. Okay. Um, it's hard to kick against. All right. Very good. <clears throat> so, Paul's going to uh, help us um, remind us ourselves of some of the, the contents of the letter, because clearly uh, one or two of us were, were a wee bit hazy. <clears throat> In the letter, we do have a very pithy summary of the gospel. For I see no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power for the salvation of everyone who has faith, Jews first, but Greeks as well. For in it is revealed the saving justice of God, a justice based on faith and addressed to faith. As it says in scripture, anyone who is upright through faith will live. <clears throat> we have as well a very sober assessment of the state of humanity without God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were helpless. We were sinners. We were God's enemies. But beyond that, Paul sets forth a wonderful idea of being put right by God as a gift. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And on top of that, there is the glorious possibility of real personal change. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. We get a very challenging reflection on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for even, evil and never avenge yourselves. And there's wisdom also for people who are at odds to help bring them together. Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Let us be always seeking the ways which lead to peace and the ways in which we can support one another. To us, all the wonderful stuff in Romans, there's some stuff that is just a wee bit difficult to understand. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who are patient and well-doing, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, there will be wrath and fury. Which seems to be at odds, does it not, with our ideas about Paul and 
works, um, trying versus trust. And then we have Paul's rather upbeat description of Christian living in chapters 6 and 8. For sin will have no dominion over you, but you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. How do we square that with chapter 7, with the pessimism? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then there are those three really troublesome chapters, 9 to 11, which seem to be shoved in rather awkwardly after all the good theology of 1 to 8 and the good practical advice that's going to come in chapters 12 to 15. Chapters in which Paul agonizes over the failure of his fellow countrymen and women to believe in Christ. And yet he comes to the conclusion in chapter 11. And so all Israel will be saved. What does he mean by that? He doesn't really explain. And of course that has led to all sorts of wild and woolly um, ideas. We might also explain or mention his comments regarding the tyrannical rule of Emperor Nero in chapter 13. Rulers hold no terror for those who do right. The one in authority is God's servant for your good. This, the very ruler who was responsible for executing innocent Christians a few years later and indeed for Paul's own death. (coughs) Romans is a lengthy letter. It's not, as we've seen, terribly straightforward. But I think I'd want to go along with Luther when he said this. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament. It's truly the purest gospel. It's It's worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. And I think we can forgive uh, Luther 500 years ago for his androcentric language there. We can never read or ponder it too much, for the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. And in case you were in any doubt about that, let's just listen for a few minutes to the soaring, exalted prose at the end of chapter 8. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Paul. Help us make sense a wee bit more of what's in the letter. I thought it'd be worthwhile hearing from a couple of people from the first century. We've already met Paul. There's somebody else uh, who's going to help us with this at this point. Yes, thank you, Dr. Burnett, from the <coughs> live link from the 21st century. Well, good evening again. Uh, as you've heard, I'm Paul, first name Saint. Uh, I have a very good friend I want to introduce you to, and her name is Phoebe. Phoebe, please come up. Do welcome Phoebe. Now, Phoebe's one of the leaders of the church here in Corinth. She's a wee bit better off than some of the other folks in the church, and she hosts some of the meetings in her home. But she's one of the people who are the real backbone of that church, really loves and serves the people. But she's got great vision too. And what's more, she's a great preacher. So, when I was looking around for someone to take my letter to the churches in Rome, I thought, Phoebe, she's the one. She knows her Bible. She understands my theology. If anyone can deliver the letter and read it out in the way that I mean it, and then go through it with the house church leaders to work out the practical implications, it's got to be Phoebe. And she knows a lot of people in Rome too. And then there are quite a few of the house church leaders there who are women as well. Prisca, Junia, Mary, Tremphenia and Tryphosa. So Phoebe, yes, Phoebe will do a great job for me. My goodness, what would the leadership of the church be without women? Well, hello everybody. That's Paul. Yes, the Apostle Paul. Saint Paul. Although he'd be a bit annoyed if anyone thought he was the only saint around here. But he's a great guy. We owe everything to him in Corinth. Didn't he travel all the way here to bring us the gospel? Of course, there was that unpleasantness a wee while ago when those letters were flying back and forth between us and him. He did get a bit hot under the collar with that angry letter and all. Between you and me, he can be a bit excitable. Mind you, we probably deserved it. The way things were going, all that rivalry about leadership, the chaos at the church meetings and, oh, I'm ashamed to bring it up, some of our people living like pagans. Not good. But Paul was a real help, got us past all that. That thing he put in his letter about love, beautiful it was, and got a lot of us thinking. Anyway, he's staying with us now for a few months, before he sets off for Jerusalem with the money he's collected from the Gentile churches in Asia Minor and Greece. Between you and me, he's pretty nervous about that because he's not too sure how it'll be received. Goodness knows the state those poor Christians are in down there. They could do with the money. 
But there has been a, more than a bit of tension between Paul and some of the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem this past while. You see, some of them think that to follow Jesus, you've got to become Jewish. Well, I can see their point of view, even if I don't subscribe to it. They say it's our Jewish God that's broken into the world. It was foretold in our Jewish scriptures. And God has done this new thing through the Jewish Messiah. So it's obvious then, if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be Jewish. There is a kind of logic to it, you have to admit. But don't for goodness sake say that to him. He gets very hot under the collar about this. Just read that letter he wrote to the Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Foolish Galatians. Those who are disturbing you should castrate themselves. Wow, like the blue torch paper and retire. No, he's pretty adamant about this. You don't have to be Jewish to be a Jesus follower or to receive the Spirit. That's what all that stuff in his letter to Galatia and in this letter to Rome is all about when he refers to works of Torah. You don't need to live a Jewish lifestyle. All you need is to have faith in the Messiah. Of course, Paul's really thinking of us Gentiles. He doesn't want any barrier to us following Jesus, especially for the men, if you get my meaning. But anyway, he's dead keen on taking this offering to Jerusalem and having peace and just hopes he'll get a good reception. Actually, I think this is one of the reasons he's written to the Romans. He's never actually been to Rome but he knows they are pretty thick with Jerusalem. So I think he's hoping that once they read his letter and understand what he's really all about, they'll put a good word in for him with Jerusalem. So while he's here in Corinth, he's written this long letter to Rome. And the plan is that once he's delivered the money to Jerusalem, he'll head to Rome. Oh boy, he's busting, keen to get there. See, he has this grand plan to take the gospel to the far west of the empire. Can you believe it? Look at him. Look how old he is. Probably mid-fifties by now. And he's been traipsing up and down the length and breadth of the eastern Mediterranean for the past 20 years, spreading the good news about the Messiah. And just when you think he might want to put up his feet with a glass of our nice Greek wine, not Retsina, he thinks, where has the gospel not been preached? Ah, yes, I'll go to Spain. And he's not talking about a holiday in Marbella. No, he's talking about a major mission out there. Goodness knows what part of the world that the world is like. So he's going... He knows he's going to need a good base from which to launch this mission. He's going to need people to support him, to pray for him, and where better than Rome? Geographically right, and as he says in his letter, news of their faith has reached everywhere. Lots of Christians, famous church, mostly Gentiles, 
well made for each other, them and Paul, wouldn't you say? So I think that's why he's written this long letter. He wants to introduce himself to the Romans, help them understand his view of the gospel, get them on board for the big mission he has in mind. Of course, there is one problem. Like a lot of the churches, there is a bit of tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles Christians. So Paul is very keen to see if his letter can help them be as united as possible, so as to give this new venture to Spain the best chance of succeeding. So he's asked me to take his letter to Rome for him and to read it to the various house churches and help them understand everything he's saying. So he's going through it line by line with me, making sure I can communicate it in just exactly the right way. It's pretty exciting, I have to say. Oh, and one other thing about Phoebe. Did I mention she can talk? (laughs) Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Well, thanks to uh, Paul and Phoebe for all their, their help. Um, thanks to Chris um, and to uh, the band. <clears throat> for those of you who are interested, uh, Phoebe appears in uh, Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. And knowing what we do know about the format of first century letters and how letter writing and delivery worked 
we can be pretty confident about Phoebe's role in taking Paul's letter to Rome and then helping interpret it to the house churches there. I want now just to say a little bit more about Romans generally and then finish by looking at some verses in Romans uh, 12. At the AGM a few weeks ago, Steve referred to this congregation as a group of mismatched people. Mismatched, and yet who somehow managed to cohere together as a group of Jesus followers. Presbyterians, non-Presbyterians, conservatives, liberals, charismatics, pedo-baptists, would-be adult baptizers, and so on. Actually, here in this group of Christians in Rome in the first century, you have a group of people that was probably even more mismatched than anything you might want to say about Fitzroy. It used to be thought of Romans that it had been written at leisure by Paul, sitting on the veranda of his villa as the sun went down, overlooking the Mediterranean, thinking, let me just write down all I know about theology. Um, But actually, if we look closely at the letter, we soon get disabused of that idea. And we begin to realize that just like Paul's other letters, it was written to a particular group of people in a particular group of uh, particular circumstances at a particular time in history. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Paul writes with a specific purpose in mind to address the very real challenges that were being faced by the various churches. And Romans was really no different than that. It's a letter written by Paul to a group of Christian house churches which he's never before visited with a particular purpose in mind. As we've heard, listening to Phoebe, this was very likely to do with his plans to take the gospel to Spain and to use Rome as a base. He mentioned that in chapter 15. If this major mission were to be able to take place, the Roman Christians would need to be fully united and at one. The problem was, as we can gauge from the letter, Paul had heard that this was not the case. In chapters 14 and 15 of the letter, we hear of tensions between two groups of people because of attitudes to food. There's the strong and the weak. And the nature of the dispute as we read about it in those chapters is very like the tensions that might arise between Jews and Gentiles over Jewish food laws. Then in chapter 11, Paul roundly chastises the Gentile Christians for their arrogance towards their Jewish brothers and sisters. He reminds them that they are only included in God's people because of God's kindness. That they've only lately been grafted in to the vine of Israel. So seemingly we have here in Rome some tensions between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now this actually is the, was a pretty widespread problem in the first, for the first generation of Christians. We hear about it in Acts, in Galatians, in Philippians, and Ephesians. And as Phoebe reminded us, it was very natural for, Jew, for Jewish followers of Jesus to think that you needed to become Jewish to follow Jesus. It's Israel's God at work in the world. It was foretold in Israel's scriptures. It's a Jewish Messiah. So come on. You've got to be Jewish if you're going to follow Jesus. There's a kind of a logic to it. But Paul's genius, however, and, and we all owe him a great debt, actually, was to read his Jewish scriptures and to come to understand, as he says in Romans 3.21, now, apart from the Torah, Apart from any need, without any need for it, 
The saving justice of God has been revealed in the person of Jesus the Messiah. Importantly for Paul, of course, that had all been revealed in Israel's scriptures. God, says Paul in 3.29, is the God of the Gentiles as well as the God of the Jews. And God will justify both races on the same basis. Trust in, commitment to, the Messiah, Jesus, 3.30. So Paul Paul preached his Torah-free gospel to the Gentiles and founded new communities of Jesus believers which combined Jews and Gentiles into one united, spirit-filled group that demonstrated the coming reign of God. In fact, for Paul, the coming reign of God had already broken into the world and was even now being experienced by this radical new family of faith. Excuse me. Suffering a wee bit of a cold today, so... Um. We read, however, of the difficulties that Paul faced at times in convincing some of the Jewish contingent within the church that, in fact, Gentiles did not need to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. Now, Galatians is the prime example of that. And we need to be aware when we read Paul's letters that when he compares works of law, works of Torah, to faith in Christ, he's not primarily trying to compare, trying to gain God's favor, um, good works, if you like, uh, per se, simply versus trusting. He's actually talking about a concrete problem in the first century and is specifically contrasting works of Torah versus faith in the Messiah. Do you have to be Jewish in order to follow Jesus? So back to Rome, where the problem seems to be the opposite of that at Galatia, though still revolving around Jews and Gentiles. In Galatia, you see, the problem was Jewish superiority. Jewish Christians were making demands of the Gentile believers. In Rome, it's actually the opposite. The Gentiles were looking down their noses at their Jewish brothers and sisters. Now, a plausible scenario has been put forward to explain the background to this. The Roman historian Suetonius records that in AD 49, the emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome over a dispute that Suetonius refers to over Crestus. And we hear of this actually as well in Acts 18.2, where Aquila and Priscilla arrive in Corinth having been expelled from Rome by Claudius. So at this point, we might assume that the Christian um, house churches in Rome become largely Gentile in nature. The Jews are expelled, and so it remains for some years until Claudius dies and Nero comes to the throne, at which point Claudius' edict lapses and the Jews are able to come back to Rome. So one can very easily imagine a situation of some tension as the old leaders return and the churches try to accommodate this more mixed situation. And where some of the Jewish believers who are coming back still have ideas that Torah regu- some Torah regulations are still relevant. So that may well be the underlying reason for what we read in Romans. But in any case, once we take chapters 14 and 15 and chapters 9 to 11 seriously, we have to take on board, I think, that seeking a united church was very likely Paul's main reason for writing the letter. So, although we tend to think of Romans as primarily to do with salvation, it's at least as much to do 
with church relations. If you wanted to use theological jargon, you would say Romans is as much to do with ecclesiology as it is with soteriology. You can forget that last sentence if you want. So with all that in mind, I'd like us to to think for a few minutes about Romans chapter 12. Let me do a quick recap in two minutes or less of the letter up to chapter 12. He introduces himself to the Romans in uh, Romans 1, and then from 18 onwards to 320, he shows that both Jews and Gentiles are in exactly the same situation. They're in the same boat with regards to their bad situation without Christ. There's no difference. Particularly in chapter 1, he deals with Gentile sin. And there's a whole catalogue of the way the Gentiles live. And just as the Jews are shouting at the beginning of chapter 2, preach it, brother, he pulls the rug right from under them and highlights the fact that the Jews are every bit as bad. Then in chapters 3 and 4, he shows that both groups are now brought into God's family on the same basis, faith in the Messiah. And this new family, he shows in chapters 5, 6, and 8, have been brought into an entirely new realm, the realm of Christ, the realm of freedom from sin, the realm of the Spirit. And by the way, he says in chapter 7, Torah has absolutely no power in this new realm. It will only lead to one thing, wretchedness, wretched person that I am. If you try and live under Torah, it has no power to give life. The only thing that can bring new life, chapter 8, is the resurrection of Jesus and the Spirit of God. So Jews and Gentiles are, are both sinners. They're both saved on the same basis. They both experience the same uh, life of resurrection and, in the Spirit. But Paul, if that's all true, what about Israel? That's the question that's been begged throughout these, these uh, previous eight chapters. What about God's promises to his ancient people? Is God really faithful after all? And that's the question that he deals with in chapters 9 to 11, where he maintains, of course, that God has not abandoned his ancient promises. And so we arrive at uh, chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, not to be conformed to this age, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, the therefore here is very important. As the old preacher said, if you see a therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for. Because of all I've just said, says Paul, about the common plight of Jews and Gentiles, the common salvation through faith in Christ, the common experience of the life in the Spirit, the ongoing faithfulness of God to Israel, because all of that is true, don't just be like the world around which is passing away. Because of all that Christ has, God has done in Christ in making this united, spirit-filled family, don't allow your thinking to revert to that of those around you. Where sectarianism is natural. Where you're only interested in you and your own kind. Where self-interest rules. That's the characteristic of this age, says Paul. That's not the way things work in God's kingdom. 
So although we often read verses 1 and 2 on their own as a general exhortation to live lives that are different than the world around and which seek to please God, they are, in fact, directly related to Paul's overall thesis and concern, which is the establishment of this countercultural, loving family of God, which will, of necessity, stand over against the world around. But the Romans need to continually have their mind transformed so that they can live in this way. Paul deliberately uses a Greek tense in verse 2 for the word be transformed, which asks the Romans to keep on being transformed. It's a process. This new family of God is such a radical concept in the world that to properly engage in it, our minds need to keep on being transformed. And it's as the Roman believers and and us too, as we allow God to transform our thinking and we demonstrate the reality of this new, loving, united family that we prove, that we demonstrate God's good, pleasing, perfect will. This is his plan. This is God's will to have a loving family in the world which demonstrates the reality of his kingdom. It's also interesting to note the singular and plural forms that Paul uses in verse 2. He says, you all, use, you all, are to keep on being transformed. How? By the renewal of the mind, singular. It's the common mind of this group of believers that is in view here. The outlook of this new, put-right, spirit-infused family of God in Rome needs to be continually renewed, continually aligned with God's view of things, as opposed to that of the world around. Because the world around us, one translation has it, tries to push us into its mold. Your mind together, says Paul, is one where unity and love flourish. And so, verses 1 and 2, which flow directly from the previous material in the letter, are now closely connected to what follows. Nobody's any better than anybody else, verse 3. We're all members of the same body, 4 and 5. Each of us has something unique and worthwhile to contribute, 6 to 8. And love is what it's all about, verses 9 and 10. And then Paul goes on to be more specific about how this mutual love is expressed. Verse 12, contribute to each other's needs and show hospitality. And let's remember, Paul is talking here to a group of people who are at the bottom rung of society, who have very little themselves. They were poor artisans. They were slaves. There was probably a few homeless people. But of being united and loving, loving each other meant anything. It had to start there making sure everybody in the community is okay, showing hospitality. Paul, of course, has quite a lot to say about the overflow of this love to the pagan world. That's for another time, another day. The basis and starting point of such an overflow is within the community of Jesus followers. Now, we don't have to say too much to begin to see how all of this might be relevant to us, a group of Jesus followers here 2,000 years on in Belfast. The challenge to us is to start thinking of our Jesus following not simply as something I do on my own 
with my Bible reading, my own prayer time, my desire to have my mind renewed so that I can act in a way that's pleasing to God and to start thinking of us together, having our mind renewed, thinking in a different way from the world around. Probably more than ever, the world around us emphasizes me, my needs, my profile, my selfies, my achievements, my little bit of celebrity, more than ever before. But God has called into being communities like ours, where believe it or not, to use Paul's words, we're called by God, set apart, put right, set free, have the Spirit of God, have been enervated by the very resurrection life of Jesus. The transformation process is underway. And so we are to express in our communal life together the life of the age to come, the life of the risen Christ in the midst of a world that is decaying and lost. Together we are to be a beacon of hope in the midst of the darkness. Possibilities for ourselves and for the world are boundless. As the writer of 1 John said, greater is the one who is in you all than the one who is in the world. Paul hits a a similar, yes, let's use the word that we're so afraid of sometimes, triumphant note in those words from chapter 8 that Chris sang for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? Actually, Paul says, we are super conquerors. That's the import of the word that he uses. We are super conquerors through Christ who loved us. That's the reality that Paul in Romans sets before us. Question to us individually and together as a group of Jesus followers is, dare we believe it? Will we say yes to such audacious claims and begin to and go on letting our mind be transformed by these truths so that together we can become visible, tangible, united, loving expression of the reality of God's new age in the world here, now, today? Let's say a prayer. Lord, we praise you for your love and your grace, which has touched all our lives. Uh, We pray tonight that the truth of your word will take seed in us. Um, You'll enable us to lift our eyes, um, see Jesus and become participators in the life of your spirit in a fuller and deeper way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.